from the celebratory studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it's time for the 100th Lehigh Valley episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks, You Bet Your Garden. What has been the hands-down most popular question of the week in our 22 years of public broadcasting? I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll reveal what color to paint your porch to repel spooks and spiders. Plus, evasive answers to your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and revealingly raucous ramifications. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you banishing wasps and werewolves with a specific shade of blue right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Lehigh Valley Health Network. In life, we have many kinds of partners, school bus partners, business partners, even gardening partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life, your health? Lehigh Valley Health Network, your health deserves a partner. Welcome to the 100th Lehigh Valley episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, it was the single most popular question of the week we have ever run in the 22 years this show has been on the air. And it will either help you repel wasps from your home or keep evil spirits out, or maybe both. We'll tell you all about it later on. It's time to jump right to your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Patty, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you so much. I'm a first-time above-ground gardener. Oh. I'm here in South Carolina. Uh, we really need to enrich our soil, so we decided with the virus going on, that we would do it, and we made it out of cedar wood and cypress wood, excuse me, and we built up an eight-by-four garden spot. We put the new, the cardboard on the bottom, then we did rocks, then we did compost, then we got a special mix from the nursery mm-hmm. of worm droppings and compost and um, enriched dirt. So planted tomatoes, cucumbers, and squash, Eggplant, we got the eggplants, all the blooms are falling off. Mm-hmm. Cucumbers about to take over the whole bed. <laughs> blooms beautifully, no cucumbers. Okay. Tomatoes, we got one tomato growing. The squash will grow to about an inch and it rots. Hmm. And I want to know if you have any idea. I know we've had a lot of rain in South Carolina. Could the soil be too rich? Um, sometimes the soil that is too rich can impair uh, direct seeding. Uh, were you putting seeds in the ground or um... plants? Um, I bought uh, some. Two of the tomatoes I grew from seed. Mm-hmm. Bought the cucumber plants. Bought the squash plants mm-hmm. and the eggplant. No, so the only thing I started was two tomatoes. Okay. Now, it, it seems like that's an awful lot of plants for one bed. Isn't it kind of crowded? 
Yes, it is. It, it, it truly, it's all leaves. I mean, you know, no fruit and all leaves. Yeah, and you say you've had a lot of rain. Why'd you put the rocks in the bottom? Uh, the directions that we got off the internet <laughs> oh, said for drainage, for drainage. <laughs> oh, God. So, so we got the cardboard, the rocks, and then the mulch and, you know, whatever, and all the dirt and all. It's all layered. <laughs> okay, so, you know, in the off-season, if you're not going to grow salad greens or something, get the rocks out of there. Um, now, you didn't put in any, quote, mulch, right? You just mixed different soils and compost. Yes, a compost, exactly. I didn't put any mulch in there, no, oh, just okay. compost. Okay, how big are the tomato plants now? They're about mm, four feet tall. Okay, good. I'm going to suggest, and, and you have other planting areas, right? Mm, Big containers, well, maybe? Yeah, I do. Okay. I'm going to suggest, how many tomatoes? You said you got four in there? I got four tomatoes in there. Okay. Take two of them out. Now, this may sound... Even though they're grown? Even, even though, though they're, they're grown like Even that? though they're grown. Tomatoes and roses can actually be moved around pretty easily if you do a couple oh. of tricks. So okay. So prepare the new planting spot before you dig up the tomatoes. Um, make right. sure the hole is deep and you want to okay. pull off the bottom leaves of your tomato plant and drop it down so that there's, especially where you are, you want a good foot underground. Okay, that's what I wanted to know, a foot. Okay, good. And if you've got any old eggshells around or any other source of calcium, you can put a little bit in the planting hole. Okay, I do have eggshells. I've been saving those. Great, good. How about tea leaves? How about tea and coffee grounds? Okay, no, bad? no, no. Um, stick with me here. So eggshells okay. egg on top of the root ball, then fill the hole back up with the dirt you dug up. Do this at sunset, not Perfect. first thing mm -hmm. in the morning. And then give exactly. the tomato plants, I presume they're caged or something? Yes. So give them good support and then water them deeply but slowly. Let a hose drip at the base of the newly planted tomato for an hour or two. And okay. it, may, it may wilt a little bit the next day, but it'll, it will recover nicely. You don't want to do it first thing in the morning because then it'll die in the sun. Exactly. So My other question is, can you cut the tops off a cucumber plant or will that kill the plant? Well, the top is the growing tip. And mm -hmm. so you would be left with whatever you had. Okay. Um, now, I the, didn't know if they'd sprout out. Okay. If, if, you, uh, if your cucumber plant is taking over, once you get half the tomatoes out of there, why don't you try to trellis that plant straight up? It is trellis. Oh, and okay. it is up like six feet tall. Okay. I mean, it is huge. I mean, is there any, I've got three plants. Uh -huh. Is there any okay. horse manure or chicken manure in this mix? Not that I know of. Okay. Um, I, well, what would it be? Well, it, it has to be, I think it's cow manure, because there was big hunks of stuff in that dirt that we bought, I um, guess in the compost that we got from them. Cow manure is like liquidy and floppy. Okay, well, this is hunks. Hunks. So I don't know what it is. I think you got, like, I think you got horse manure in there. Okay. And that's going to that must be. That's going to give you enormous plants, but it's going to stop them from fruiting. <sighs> is that right? Okay. That, I'm sure, because it smells, the dirt smells. Yeah. Not now, but it did when we got it. Oh, yeah. You got manure, unfortunately. 
Um, okay. So do you have any independent garden centers nearby? Yes, we do. Go to, go to one right away and get a nice organic fertilizer that has a big middle number, preferably a liquid fertilizer. You know, how, right. you know how there's three numbers on every bag or bottle of fertilizer? Right. Like nine. What, what numbers, when you say large numbers, what are, what's the numbers? Any idea? Well, it, with an organic fertilizer, it's all going to be in the single digits. But you want okay. something with the lowest possible first number because you've got a lot of nitrogen. But you want as much available phosphorus as you can get into your soil. So something like a 261, something like that would okay. be ideal. Tell them there. Right. They'll help you out. Tell them you want a liquid fertilizer, low on nitrogen, and high in phosphorus. Because I, right. I think we solved your problem. I think you have. I mean, there, it's a beautiful garden, so help me. It is yeah, but gorgeous. The, again, the problem, nothing... the problem with horse manure is it makes plants grow to twice their size, but it limits the flowering and fruiting. Exactly. That's right. That's so, the main problem. Thin out some of the plants, put them in pots, do something else with them. Make sure there's some airflow in there. Uh, give them a nice phosphorus feeding, and you still have tons of time left in this season. Right. Okay. Um, is it too late in South Carolina to plant cucumber plants? Not cucumber, watermelons. Um, well, you can't in grow the big rattlesnake watermelons this late in the season. You might be able okay. to get by with what we call the refrigerator watermelons, the babies, the round ones. Uh-huh. Okay. But if you uh, want to grow if you want to grow one of those watermelons that looks like a propane tank, you know. Yeah, you got to start no. you got to start early in the season with a plant. Okay. Well, I want one that's not ripe watermelon. I I make watermelon uh, rind pickles. Oh, excellent. And, and and it's wonderful, but you can't find thick skin watermelons anymore. Oh, I so. would. My experience with the uh, with the refrigerator ones is the skins are very thick. Well, not here in South Carolina. We went through four watermelons this week to get enough to be able to make the watermelon pickles. So I got the last one I got had seeds, mm -hmm. and its skin was thicker than any. Yeah. So anyway, so that made more sense. Yeah, so I'm looking for unripe watermelons. So yeah, I and I'll don't grow my own. Right, and don't <laughs> look at any seedless watermelons. No, no seedless. No, in fact, I saved some of the seeds from that watermelon that had the thickest skin. Okay, well, you know, there's right? a, if it wasn't a hybrid variety, it should grow the same melon. So, you know, there's That's only what I'm hoping. there's only one way to find out. Try, try, try. I'm gonna plan it. I am. Well, I have enjoyed this so much, Mike, and you've given me some good information, and I'll head out right now to one of the nurseries and tell them my problem and get the right fertilizer. Excellent. Today. Excellent. <laughs> okay. All right. Good All luck right, to thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right, Number to call, 833-727-9588. Ashley, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Ashley. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I am just ducky. Thanks for asking. <laughs> ducky Wonderful. is taking yeah. Ducky is taking over the show. Uh, where is Ashley? I'm in Washington, New Jersey. Okay. Um, where is Washington in New Jersey? What exit? It's uh, Warren County, so I'm exit 17 on 78. Okay, good. All right. Oh, I know. Um, you're not that far from Clinton, right? 
Yep, right above it. <laughs> okay, good. Now I know exactly where you are. Okay, good. What can we do you for? Okay, so well, I just want to say thank you so much. Your show is wonderful. And um, as a first-time gardener, I've been learning a ton. But now with the summer wrapping up, I'm interested in keeping a year-round garden, and I'm looking for fall and winter gardening advice. Right. Um, so right now I have some chemical-free straw over my soil, but I oh, read good. how yeah I read how root stout used to grow in straw over the winter to prevent the soil from freezing. Um, so I just wanted to hear your advice on that, and I wanted to know if I could plant potatoes. Okay, so you're taught root stout was a huge influence on the organic gardening readers of the 1950s. Ruth had this technique of no work gardening called gardening from my couch. And what she would do is rough up the soil a little bit, lay her seed potatoes directly on top of the soil as opposed to burying them, and then cover them literally with, I believe, three or four feet of straw. Now, I don't remember Ruth doing this in the wintertime, nor do I remember where Ruth lived. But if you wanted to try it as a fun experiment, you can go ahead. I will warn you that this spring, I had some volunteer potatoes come up in the garden, okay. and then we had a real cold snap, and I was surprised to see that the growth that was above ground uh, was frost damaged, was just turned black. Now, the plant themselves survived, but I had always considered potatoes more cold hardy than that. Um, and you're not getting a lot of photosynthesis, you realize, over, over the winter time. But right. already you seem to have the concept that gardening should be fun. So I would tell you to go for it. <laughs> yes, definitely. Do you have raised beds or anything like that yet? Yes, I have, um, I have raised beds about 150 square feet, um, three feet wide, 18 Excellent. feet long. Excellent. Um, are, are you planning to grow salad greens over the winter? Yes. I want to do salad greens. I, I have some radishes, some broccoli. Um, I wanted to try potatoes and anything else that you might suggest. Do you have uh, season extension devices yet? Do you have row covers or anything? No. What I'm going to suggest, you know what row covers are, right? The white blanket-like things that um, yeah. keep the ground warm for the crops. Well, they're good, but what's much better is a small tunnel. Uh, okay. made of row cover. There are many places that you can find these things, but what they are is row cover to which they've attached hoops that kind of make them look like the, the wagons on wagon train. Um, sure. So you got some height there and you can get them in either lightweight or heavyweight weaves. So for you, for, you know, you're, you're gonna go for broke here, you're gonna go for the middle of winter, I would get heavyweight row covers, and the nice thing about them with the, um, with the hoops in them already is they have ties at the end, so they're, they're okay. not open and you don't have to do anything special. It's like on your camping gear when you pull the rope down and that little, uh, that little ball holds everything. Okay. So they're great for that. Um, look for lettuces that um, say they're especially cold hardy. Um, okay. Kale is very cold hardy. You might have fun with that. And there aren't those kind of insects that love to eat the, ca uh, the kale over the winter. So, you know, maybe you finally get some. Um, 
Rat, <laughs> radishes are a great idea. I'm not sure about broccoli over winter. Okay. What I would suggest with broccoli over winter is you grow it during the regular season and cut the main head off at the end of spring and then harvest side shoots for the rest of the season. And something like that could go under a big row cover and you could continue to harvest that. Okay. And finally, right. if this is your idea of a good time, next year you can grow Brussels sprouts. And when the season is over, you actually bend the plants to the ground, cover them with straw, and you can harvest them all winter long, guaranteed. Oh, fantastic. Okay, that sounds great. Just make sure you have enough butter and garlic to make them edible. <laughs> all right, note it. <laughs> all right, well, good luck to you. It sounds like you're having fun already, and that's what gardening should be all about. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your advice. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Right, take care. Bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and once again remind you that seeds and plants are in short supply this panic-demic season. So if you want to make sure you have seeds for cool weather crops like lettuce, spinach, and kale, obtain them soon. But don't go seed searching just yet because we'll be right back with the most popular segment ever and more of your somewhat popular phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to the 100th episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Rodale Institute. Since 1947, the Rodale Institute has been growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education. Learn more about local events, workshops, and tours at rodaleinstitute.org. The Rodale Institute, because the future is organic. Welcome back to the 100th anniversary episode of You Bet Your Garden, coming to you from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Coming up a little bit later in the show, there is a special color of paint that is said to repel both wasps and other stinging insects and evil spirits. It was one of the most popular questions of the week we've ever run on the show, so we're taking a look back at it after more of your fabulous phone calls to 833-727-9588. Don, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Don. How are you, man? I'm doing well here in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. All right. What can we do for Don in the Garden State? Okay, I'm calling you about the Japanese lilac tree in front of the house. This tree was put in by the township. It sits on a piece of uh, ground between the pavement and the curb. The width is about four feet. And for many years, uh, about 10 years since they put it in, it flourished. 
I never use volcano mulch or anything like that. I'm purely organic. Thanks to you, Mike. You're welcome. <laughs> Shout out to you. Well, for the last 10 years, I put solar Christmas lights there, and then I would take them down after Christmas. Mm-hmm. But this year, I kept them in longer, and then the, the panic pandemic took place, and I said, hey, I want to keep it up, and the neighbors liked it. Mm-hmm. And and the lights seemed appropriate for our dark times. This spring, um, the tree did not bud any new blossoms, giving off a wonderful fragrance when you walk down the street. Right, and that is odd because as lilacs age, uh, they typically bloom more prolifically every yeah. year. Um, yeah. My lilac has been in the ground, oh, must be 25 years it took a long time to get the first blooms, but once that sucker started blooming, it's it's a major show in the spring. Now, yeah, I know. I, I really missed it this year, and uh, so I thought maybe I read that insects, animals, and trees and plants are now affected by light pollution, and everybody has lights like that. So I was wondering if the lighting affected, or I did some bonehead thing by these Christmas lights, or well, maybe something else is going on. Well, Well, it's not light pollution, Mm -hmm. um, but the lights are responsible. So bonehead, not a bonehead. You made people happy over the winter. It looked pretty. Now, your solar-powered lights, I presume this thing is in full sun. Yes. So the lights would come on automatically as the area got dark. Do you know how long they stayed on, or did they stay on till the morning? No, um, they stayed on till like 3 o'clock. Okay. Way back when, when I was the editor of Organic Gardening magazine, I had a big greenhouse in my driveway in which I raised plants for the Philadelphia Flower Show exhibits we put on. And to keep the plants happy, we actually vented our clothes dryer into the greenhouse and tried to do dry all our loads late at night. Now, you can't do that with a gas dryer, but we had electric. Um, We also had heating mats over the entire bench in the center, and I had two high-intensity lights in the ceiling and an automatic vent, which was really important because sometimes it would get pretty warm in there. And it was amazing for us to watch in the middle of the night clouds of steam pouring out into this area where the leaves of the trees were lit from underneath. It was very dramatic. Uh, but the trees were confused by this. You know, they need, they need to be in tune with the seasons, especially a spring bloomer like a lilac would be very confused if it wasn't experiencing really short days and it was getting all this extra light uh-huh. late at night. So I think that the lights were responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you didn't get the blooms this year. But as you said, you made a lot of people happy. Yeah, man, people enjoyed it. They, I, you know, they compliment me a lot on my gardening, but they really complimented the lights. Yeah, and I can understand that. So if that's a bonehead move, I'll take it. <laughs> um, I think what you want to do is take down the lights because right now is when your lilac is forming buds for next year. Mm-hmm. So let's stop the confusion and, you know, put the light someplace else. And I think if the tree is not lit or uh, riddle me this, how about 
you go out and get a couple of nice strings of LEDs, put them in the tree, but mm -hmm. set them to go off at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night and not, ah. not be on all night long. Oh, okay. That's the LEDs nice. wouldn't generate any heat. You know, if this was old incandescent lights, that could have been the problem. Mm -hmm. But um, I think if you put a timer on these things, and, you know, it gets dark at 3 o'clock in the afternoon around Christmas time. So just have it go off at, like, 9 or 10. And I don't think the trees – there. there's a name uh, for this. It's um, – it's almost like chronobiology in humans, and I, I, I can't just think of it now. But yeah, they are very sensitive to changes in the light that confuse them as to the time of year and the changing of the seasons. So that would apply for vegetable gardens and flowers, too? Cause people no, no, vegetable it. gardens are annuals. They're not, spring bloomers only bloom once a year, so things like azaleas, rhododendrons, forsythia, they're on a real time clock. They want, you know, they wanted to get dark early in the winter and then the gradually lengthening days and slightly warmer temperatures induce the blooms that have been set on the plant for months to open up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and you're, it's not going to affect vegetable plants. Really, I think the, the plants that would be most susceptible to being confused here are the spring bloomers. Okay. All right. Okay, Mike. Good luck okay. to you, sir. Okay, great. Rosalind, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Well, I live here, Rose, so it's, <laughs> you, don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to welcome me. Just don't lock me out. So, <laughs> Rosalind, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Sweating on a hot, uh, humid day in central Pennsylvania. Okay, that was my next question. So you're in the State College area? Yeah, I'm dead center State College. Okay. Do you have any affiliation with the university? Yes, I'm a professor. Of? Uh, women's studies, Latin American studies, and Spanish. Oh, okay. Very good. Very good. I took four years of Spanish, and when I went to Cuba, all I was able to do was embarrass my son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody says that. It gets clogged in the back of your brain, It right? really does. <laughs> All right. What can we do for Roseland in State College um, on a hot and humid day? Well, Mike, um, I'm originally from Vineland farmland and have, um, you know, pretty grew up growing stuff. Uh, right. Central Pennsylvania, I've been here for 20 years, and um, with the, the heat wave now is really testing my ability to grow. Uh, things. It's, uh, I lost my cucumbers due to the heat. I didn't cover them quickly enough. And now my question is about tomatoes. Right. Um, because I, I found myself um, just automatically watering them more because right. it was just so hot. And then I started, I, I wrote and, you know, tried to get some information from you. And uh, you always say, water once a week, maybe twice if it's really hot. Um, and then I checked with a friend who's um, from Vineland, who's out at the uh, Controlled Environment Agriculture Center at um, University of Arizona, who grows hydroponically, mm -hmm. and he said, no, do not overwater, and I had some of the signs of overwatering, right. that they had no taste, 
the tomatoes didn't have really much taste, and they were getting uh, they were leaves were yellowing. So, um, in lieu of being able to switch over to a greenhouse, which is what I'd love to do, I wanted to know what I can do to best care for my tomatoes. I have about maybe eight plants, nine Good. plants of five or six different varieties. Excellent, excellent. I got some questions before we proceed. Um, okay. Raised bed or flat earth? Raised. Okay. Um, what are you feeding the plants? Uh, just the compost when I put them in. You know, I, I prepare the beds every year with a good dose of compost uh, you know, that we do ourselves from scrap, you know, from that um, organic material and, um, and uh, eggshells for okay. the calcium that you recommend. Okay. And is the bed mulched with anything? No. Okay. In a season like this, now obviously where you are, you have tons of deciduous trees. Um, yeah. I'm hoping you collect and shred a lot of those to make that compost. Absolutely. Okay, very but good. But they, they have a lot of nitrogen though, right? So I don't put a whole lot of the leaves in with the food compost, with that organic material. Okay, you got with, it. For, I do that for my flowers. You got it backwards, you got it backwards. Oh. Uh, fall leaves are the carbon source in a compost pile. Okay. Uh, things like kitchen waste, especially coffee grounds, they provide the nitrogen. Oh, but yeah, nothing true. is going to overpower once you mix those materials together and it turns into something that looks like soil. So yeah. you've got it backwards. You need four times as many leaves as you right. need kitchen waste to make good healthy compost. And so, I wasn't doing that. I was using maybe a, a quarter to three quarters. Okay, so wait a minute. We, I want to continue here. Your yellowing of leaves, is this across the board on the plant, or is it starting at the bottom and moving up? Starting at the bottom and moving up. Are you planting in the same spot you have in previous years? No. I have learned to rotate from you. Okay. Well, then I would say that there's possibility that your plants are a little deficient in fertilizer. And I would urge you to go out and get a nice, gentle, organic, liquid fertilizer because we're into the middle, late part of the season and liquids become much more quickly available. I would get something like a fish and seaweed mix, not just mm -hmm. fish emulsion alone, or anything that's branded organic mm -hmm. um, with a, a, you know, a fair and But the, the plants themselves look pretty good. Yeah, they're growing like mad. Hmm. <laughs> okay. And you didn't put a, a, a lot of manure in or anything like that? Oh, no. No, no. I don't do that for the food ever. Okay. I, I, get, I, get, I use that in the flowers, the mushroom compost that has some manure in it. Okay. But that's only in the flower bed. Okay, that's fine. So what I want you to do is give them a good feeding with a gentle liquid organic fertilizer. And it'll make you feel good because then you can water them at the same time. Uh, yeah. But yes, the rule of watering is absolutely true. One thing people don't realize is plants have to dry out in between yeah. waterings or they'll get root rot um, or even worse, simply develop really short spindly roots that don't pick up enough food and water. Mm -hmm. So yes, you should soak your beds once a week for several hours to, yes. to try to imitate an inch of rain. 
Now, we have had many rolling heat waves this summer. So if the daytime temps are in the 90s, you may move up to twice a week. Mm -hmm. But you never want to water every day or more frequently than twice a week. And you never want to water for short periods of time. Um, Either set a sprinkler to come on um, at like 4 o'clock in the morning and go off at 8 o'clock in the morning so the sun dries off the plants, or just let a hose drip at the base of each plant. You can do that any time of day or night for literally three or four hours. And that way it should work out fine. Um, But, you know, I'm worried about the yellow leaves coming up from the bottom. Um, it's, It's possible that you're not rotating them uh, you're not leaving enough time in between. You got it's, it's, been got, three, it's three years. It's two or three years always. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I could be wrong, but you know, yellow leaves are a symptom of 800 different tomato problems. But when yeah. they, when they start at the bottom and move up, it's generally verticillium wilt. All right. So okay, well, be extra I'm careful about start. that. Okay. Well, Mike, how how. Um, soon do you think we as consumers, not producers of major you know, industrial agriculture, be able to have our own greenhouse or grow inside hydroponically tomatoes? Okay, two or- different things. Hydroponic gardening is not organic gardening. They have to use chemicals in the water okay. supply. There's no organic hydroponic. And I don't think there's anything wrong with hydroponic that a little dirt wouldn't cure. But where you live, it would make great sense to investigate a hoop house, which is a high tunnel of stretched plastic over a frame, rather than what we see as a traditional greenhouse. Uh, A hoop house would give you, or a high tunnel, would give you a month extra early in the season and a month extra late in the season you can also stretch shade cloth over top of it to protect your plants during the, the scorching weeks. And mm-hmm. you, you will have to irrigate because rain won't get in, but then mm-hmm. you, you can absolutely control the amount of water that gets on your plants. Oh, that's great. And these are widely, okay. these are widely available. Just go online. Um, Lancaster County, which I realize is not necessarily in your direction, but... You know. Oh, I live in Philly, too, so... Oh, okay. Yeah. Lancaster yeah. County, there are many suppliers of hoop houses and high tunnels who will also come out and install it for you. Oh, oh, wow. All righty. Well, that's that's fabulous. Mike, I really appreciate um, your expertise and, uh, and also making us feel that we don't have to be... Um, masters of the universe of growing in order to be somewhat successful. I'm still learning. (laughs) I am still learning every year. Yeah. Well, as things change, right, too, we have to constantly adjust. All right. Well, you take care, and I hope your tomatoes perk up. Thank you so much. You take care, too. Stay safe. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind the 99% of you who have chosen not to install a meadow that this is the time to take care of that cool season lawn of yours. Now is the time to aerate, reseed, overseed, and do just about everything other than let your dog pee out there. But don't go using your super soaker on satchel just yet, because we'll be right back with our most popular topic ever, 
and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to the 100th episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to the 100th anniversary episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a few moments, we will bring you the question of the week. And it is, without a doubt, the most interesting question of the week we have ever aired in the 22 years of this show, which is why we're bringing it back to celebrate with you today. So don't dare miss it, and you won't. It's coming up right after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Glenn, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How you doing? Can I beat you to just Ducky? Yes, of course you can be Ducky. We can, <laughs> we can be Ducky together. Ducky likes having friends. And where is Glenn, Ducky? I am in Exton, PA, just outside the Philadelphia suburb of Westchester. Okay, very good. What can we do you for? So, Mike, like a lot of people, you know, we're always looking for the perfect lawn. Mm-hmm. And over the past several years, I've been aerating and overseeding with tall fescue. Okay. Two years I had landscapers do it. One used a fescue blend from Fisher and Son in the Exton area. And then the other one, uh, I was just telling him, I want this blend. I want chewings. I want creeping. I want tall. I want to just try it all in this one spot that's overly shaded to see what takes. Right. So as time's going on, it looks fairly decent. Yeah. Uh, We still get brown spots, but I've been thinking about creeping red fescue in the shade. Wait a minute. Well, you get brown spots. Um, so it sounds like with the aeration and the overseeding, you know what you're doing there. Who feeds the lawn and with what? Uh, I, so I don't feed the lawn at all. I just cut the grass when it's grass cutting and leave it there on the grass. Okay, well, that's excellent. Where, where and when are you getting the brown spots? So the ones that I really get concerned about are the ones that are in the sunny areas. Huh. And I'm going to say, like, even... Maybe May, but definitely June, July, mm-hmm. I'll get a patch, a couple patches here. Okay. And that's well, what started me on this fescue trend, because that was much more popular over the lawn. Mm-hmm. And now I'm trying to get it back around. Yeah. Um, brown patch, I think that's exactly when it shows up in the spring. It's generally a result of overfeeding though, although I believe it can also be caused by um, excessive wetness and poor drainage. And if you're, um, if you're doing that much core aeration, you're obviously trying to um, provide better drainage all the time. Mm-hmm. So now... So it couldn't just be the grasses going dormant? Because some of the stuff that I read says, even like the creeping fescue, which is what my question is about, it's like, well, in the warm weather, it goes dormant, it'll go brown. But then I'm like, well, what's warm weather considered or hot weather or whatever? Yeah, no, I think what it is, is if you're not overfeeding with chemical fertilizers, then the next cause of brown patch would be 
um, high humidity, lots of rain, and not good air circulation, which, you know, there mm -hmm. might not be a lot that you can do. Now, you're talking about uh, red fescue. Is that the one you want to um, add to this mix? Yes. Back when I was the editor of Organic Gardening Magazine, we used to talk about the perfect blend for shade was a lot of the fescues that you're naming. Not so much the turf-type tall fescue, uh, but chewings fescue, creeping fescue, red fescue, and I believe there's another type called sheep, sheep's fescue. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the most shade-tolerant of the grasses. If you can match the grasses, I would, um, is there a real demarcation between the shade and the sun? It's pretty strong, yeah. Uh, oh, okay, so you get, in one area you get a lot of sun, and in another right. area you get a lot of shade. Yep, so I'll get like morning sun where it's shade, right. because of the way the sun comes up, and then somewhere around uh, 10, 9.30, 10 o'clock, it becomes shade, and it stays shade until, dappled shade right. from the trees. Uh, but I'll stay that way up until all night long, basically. Whereas the there, there's an open part mm -hmm. where it's sun in the morning and it's sun in the afternoon and it's sun at night. Excellent, excellent. Well, what I would do is I would always overseed that sunny spot with turf type tall fescue. And, okay. you know, anything you can do to improve the drainage in that area. But in the shady spots, you get a combination of like all four of the shade-loving fescues, and you've got your best shot at having what looks like a lush lawn um, in dappled shade. Now, one thing you've probably encountered is the shady spot is not to be walked on or played on or get a lot of rough traffic because the, the grass blades are, are fairly fine compared to the turf-type tall fescue. Um, but you should be able to get a good look with that, with that mixture, not mixing them all up, but doing the turf type in the front and then going to the mix of the four shade-loving fescues as you get into the trees. And I wouldn't have to worry about the shade fescues creeping over into the sun and creating problems? Well, they, I don't think they would create problems. They would kind of figure out something that might be really hard for a human to, uh, you know, where they're going to thrive versus the turf-type tall fescue. But um, I think it would be a great experiment just as you search these varieties, um, always try to match up as, as much as possible the blade shape and the color of the grass because some turf-type tall fescues are greenish, some are bluish, some are flat-bladed, some are very sharp-bladed. So whatever you can do to, to see to it, especially making the colors match, I don't think it would make any difference. Okay. And now the tall fescue, um, like I bought from, uh, I think it was called Turf Alive 3 from um, Gardens Alive. Oh, great, great. And that had RTS. All right. So that grows up in shoots, right. where the creeping is like self-repairing and spreading out. Oh, so all um, all turf-type tall fescues are uh, clumping grasses as opposed to creeping okay. grasses. But I think what you're talking about, and I don't know this for a fact, I mean, I don't work with them or for them, but I think Gardens Alive has developed a turf-type tall fescue that does have some rhizome activity and moves sideways. Okay. So it could potentially be 
actually do that yet. Okay, okay. great. All right. Thank you very much for your help. All right. Good luck, sir. Bye-bye. Have a great day. All right. It is time for a very special question of the week. Does the color blue repel pest insects or spooks? For the 100th show from my new home here in the Lehigh Valley, I have chosen to resurrect the single most popular question of the week we have ever done. It's from 2015, and it generated more internet action than, than, well, a lot of things, okay? It all started with a phone call from a listener who had been following our conversations about how to deter wasps and hornets from building their nests on or near houses, especially houses whose residents were allergic to, quote, bee stings. I say, quote, because I learned years ago that the culprits were generally yellow jackets or other aggressive wasps and hornets, and that most true bees do not sting. That's right. Most of the hundreds of different species of native bees, like bumblebees, carpenter bees, nascent, mason, nascent, nascent bees, they're almost bees, they're not quite bees yet. I meant mason bees. Squash bees, sweat bees, and ground nesting bees don't sting people, even when that type of bee does have a stinger, which is really good, as native bees are super important pollinators of most flowers, virtually all fruits, and a good number of your favorite garden veggies. They don't call them squash bees because they play a strange form of tennis, cats and kittens. No bees, you get no zucchini. Now, the non-native honeybee, which originated in Africa and was domesticated in Europe, does sting. But you generally have to do something like step on one to get stung. And then that bee dies. Ah, but highly aggressive wasps and hornets, especially yellow jackets, will sting you just because they feel like it. And each one can sting you repeatedly and generally does. Now, our caller said that his family down south always painted their porches a certain color he called haint blue to keep stinging insects from nesting there. He said that he started doing it himself after years of having wasps build nests on his porch, and he hasn't had a single nest since. I thought that was a pretty cool call. And then we were flooded with emails. Bill in Gladwin, PA, wrote, Haint means haunt in South Carolina, and the color haint blue is used specifically around openings like windows and doors to prevent the entry of evil spirits into the house. I don't think it has anything to do with insects. Deb, in Philadelphia's Powhatan Village neighborhood, added, Haint is a southern term for a ghost or anything that haunts, so I suspect that the color haint blue might have something to do with repelling spirits. Then we heard from George in Nether Providence, PA. Now, I read it wrong the first time, and I thought it was the Nether Provinces. He's a spook. But it turns out that Nether Providence is just a little area outside of Philadelphia near Swarthmore. Darn, I was hoping we'd get an email from a spook. But anyway, George wrote, when we bought our home years ago, my mother insisted that we paint the porch ceiling light blue. She claimed it was an old Pennsylvania Dutch practice that would keep wasps from building their nests there. I painted the porch ceiling light blue and no more paper wasps or mud daubers again. 
I have no idea why they stay away, but I can attest to the fact that it works. So what does this storied color really repel? Haunts or hornets, spooks or spiders, wasps or werewolves. As Deb noted in her email, there are a huge number of websites devoted to this mysterious color and practice. But the one I found most authoritative was the Sherwin-Williams website. Yep, that's Sherwin-Williams, the paint people. I quote from their site, once just an old Southern tradition, the blue porch ceiling has made its way north and is being introduced to new generations. There are numerous theories as to why, from fooling spiders and wasps into thinking the ceiling is the sky, to blue being a harbinger of good luck, to the color extending daylight, to scaring away evil spirits. They continue, Southerners, especially in the area of South Carolina, have a name for the ceiling paint used on porches, a soft blue-green referred to as haint blue. Haints are restless spirits of the dead who, for whatever reason, have not moved on from the physical world, says a color strategist they quote. She explains that haint blue, which can be found on door and window frames as well as porch ceilings, is intended to protect the homeowner from being taken or influenced by evil spirits. Ah, but wasps get equal time. The web page continues. Some people swear that blue paint repels insects, leaving a porch bug-free and pleasant during those long summer evenings and afternoons. And this belief could be seated in historical truth. When blue paints were first used on ceilings, they were usually milk paints that often contained lye, a known insect repellent. As milk paint has a tendency to fade over time, people would repaint every few years, covering the existing coat with fresh paint and fresh lye. But others theorize that insects prefer not to nest on blue ceilings because they are fooled into thinking the blue paint is actually the sky. Now, what do I think? <laughs> I think that if I had a porch, I'd paint it paint blue. Well, that sure was a lot of fun facts about the mysterious color known as haint blue, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website, where you can read it over at your leisure or your leisure. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to paint it black if I don't get out of this studio. You devil. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming, teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Of course, you will find all of this contact information, the answers to your garden questions, hundreds of them, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows. What else you want? Eggs in your beer? Oh, and our podcast. It's all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. 
You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Television and Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he was bitten by a radioactive spider during a high school science fair. Our musical director is Ken Queter. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is always cheerful, Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work and ponder lots of harvest photos at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our website wonder is Nicole Harrell. Our audio editor is the lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director is Javier Diaz. The usual gang of idiots this week includes Eric Werner, John Flynn, and Zach Patak. Our fearless leader, CEO, and grand poobah, Tim Fallon, says, hey, Mike, Congratulations on your 100th Wait a minute. Does this mean you're still sneaking into the building? I'm running out of padlocks. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Saucing tomatoes, drying garlic cloves, sowing fresh lettuce seeds, and eating bell peppers right off the plant. Ah. Mmm. This one tastes a little spicy. What's the plant tag say? Caribbean death pepper? Yikes, my kingdom for a beer. No, that doesn't work unless you drink six of them. My kingdom, my kingdom for a glass of milk. And then the beer, or maybe six of them. Woo, doggies. That is a hot little pepper. I'll be practicing reading plant tags better. Where's that milk? Until I see you again next week. Hey, boy. Hey, boy. Where's the ball? Where's the ball? <gasps> Ready? Go get it, boy. That's a good boy. Drop it. Drop it. Good boy. Good boy. Loyal partners. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life? Your health. Lehigh Valley Health Network. Your health deserves a partner. Learn more at lvhn.org. What can you expect to hear on the 101st episode of You Bet Your Garden? I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and if you think I'm planning that far ahead, you clearly have not been paying attention. Plus your fabulous phone calls. That's on the next You Bet Your Garden.